you please uh, be seated. Um, if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, as I mentioned, we're going to John chapter 6, and one of the more difficult passages on this whole topic. If you're visiting with us, I'm in a, a brief series um, on our signs and seals, which actually ends tonight. I've tried to give you a basic overview of the biblical perspective on signs and seals uh, of God's covenant as means of grace, not uh, meaning nothing, not uh, being interpreted in a physical or uh, literal way, but uh, having a a middle-of-the-road understanding. Uh, It is not circumcision uh, that uh, is the covenant, even though God very, very frequently says things like, this is my covenant with you, right? Uh, He later explains, this is the sign of my covenant. Uh, It is the true circumcision that saves you, not of the flesh, but of the Holy Spirit, and uh, whose praise is not from men, that is from God. Well, in so many ways, uh, trying to make some explanation of these, uh, these numerous passages in the Bible, which would uh, seem to uh, make the sign the thing itself, and to uh, understand what the theologians call sacramental language in a uh, uh, biblically uh, harmonious way, one that I was, as I said, not intending to be in any way uh, controversial. There are very important differences on these signs and seals. Um, I've been trying to concentrate on that, which uh, I hope all of us can agree. I realize it's been a little confusing at times, and I found myself confused at times. I hope to uh, bring it home with a more confusing text tonight. Here we are from John chapter 6, reading in verse 51. Um, well, how about, uh, how about we go to 48 for, uh, 40, 47 rather, for uh, context here. 47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it, and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. 
Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would uh, give us an understanding of this obviously important passage in your word, that rightly dividing the word of truth, we would not be ashamed, but uh, all the more confidently be able to advance in our Christian life, partake of your signs and seals to get the benefit that you have intended for us in them and through them, which is even in our Lord Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. When uh, Mary Tudor, that infamous Bloody Mary, came to the English throne, you know it was a great uh, setback for the Reformation in England. She had the Reformers arrested and tried for heresy. Hundreds were rounded up, including Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, and Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, one of the principal architects of the English Reformation. These men were brought for trial to the University Church at Oxford, where some of you have visited. There's a monument there to this day. Um, they were presented with three questions. And if they answered any of those three questions in the negative, they would be burned at the stake slowly. The questions were these. Number one, was the natural body of Christ really in the elements by virtue of the words spoken by the priest? Number two, did any other substance remain after the words of consecration? That is, was there nothing left of the bread of the wine, but only Christ's body and blood remaining? And number three, was there a propitiatory sacrifice in the Mass for the sins of the quick and the dead? That is, a sacrifice to turn away the wrath of God. Well, as the leader, as the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer was put under the greatest pressure of all. They made him first watch the excruciating agony of Ridley as he burned to death very slowly at the stake. Uh, more pressure was applied, and perhaps you know the rest of the story. At last, Cranmer signed the documents repudiating his Protestant beliefs and pledging his full allegiance to the Pope. But they decided that they'd burn him anyway. And so Cranmer, like more than 300 Protestant leaders, was burned at the stake, not for teaching salvation by grace or not for teaching that the Pope was not the head of the church or anything like that. He was burned at the stake, like the other hundreds of reformers, for denying doctrines about the Lord's Supper, those that were called transubstantiation. Now, if you want to know about his tremendous courage in his reversal on the day of his burning. You can read the rest of the story as he made a recantation of his recantation and preached the truth at the end. But I begin this way to remind you that we live in an untheological age. We live at a time when questions about the Lord's Supper, baptism, things like these are a matter of virtually no interest or import. But there was a time when the interpretation of verses like these, which we commonly consider now, were a matter of life and death and convulsed nations and churches. Now, theirs was an intolerant age, but the same questions still remain to us today. And even though the Bible spends very little time, relatively speaking, on the Lord's Supper, 
Some writers still make no bones about it that this is yet the center of their worship and their Christian faith and life as they supremely feed on Jesus in the natural body and blood. Perhaps because there are so few references to the Lord's Supper in the Bible, it turns out to be a rather difficult part of theology, one that has led to a number of very complicated and often arcane questions. But thankfully, as I've been trying to stress in this series, the average Christian doesn't need to become a scholar in order to be blessed and benefited uh, and strengthened in faith. The Bible as a whole was simply not written for theologians, but for the ordinary believers. And God's uh, appointed means of grace um, were not so that theologians could could debate, but that God's children might be blessed. Nevertheless, it's good for us to do what we are doing when we come to the table and to think about uh, the meaning and purpose of what we are doing every week. Well, let's see what we can gather from this passage in John chapter 6. In the context here, Jesus had just fed 5,000 men the previous day with a few loaves and fish, and the people concluded, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, and they want to make him king by force. But you know what a difference a day makes? By the time we started reading in this passage, many of those same people murmur, forsake him, find his words offensive, uh, and, and really for good, for good reason, consuming blood is strictly forbidden in the law of Moses, Leviticus 17. And many of his disciples, we read in verse 60, when they hear what Jesus is saying, they, they turn away. They say, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And from that time, we read, many of them went away and followed him no more. This is a pivotal chapter in the uh, flow of the book. The Lord here teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum to a people that are wondering what he is saying and what this means for them. He says to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They complain. I tell you, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. It's uh, whoever eats and drinks has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. What should we think about these verses? Are, Are we to take them literally? Are they even speaking about the Lord's Supper? And if they are, what are they teaching us about it? Well, I would like to... Uh, have two points this evening to do two, two things, and then I'd like to answer a couple of short questions. First, let's consider this passage, and I would like to show you why we cannot take these verses uh, literally, at least in the Roman sense. And secondly, I would like to survey the Gospel of John with you briefly to show how we should interpret this passage in light of the way that John always teaches. All right, how we shouldn't interpret it, how we should interpret it. First, how we should not. Just looking at this passage, why I say we cannot take these verses literally, my first point. Uh, I I, I think that if we uh, uh, pause to just look around at many of these verses that 
we would tend to read over, we can see that it is impossible to take these in literal or earthly terms. Let's just look at some examples. In verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Should we take that literally? Never hungering? Never thirsting? Is that true in the physical sense, in other words? Well, such words obviously cannot be taken in the earthly, physical, or carnal sense. We have come to Jesus, we have believed in Jesus, and yet physically we still hunger and we still thirst. There must be another meaning than the crass literal interpretation. Or in verse 54 where we read, Jesus says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Whoever? Well, of course, neither the Church of Rome nor any other church takes that in a literal sense to refer to the Lord's Supper. Although Rome says that the bread and the wine, through a particular miracle called transubstantiation, become the body and blood of Jesus, they say we take that literally, they do not believe that it also imparts eternal life to whoever receives it. That is not to be taken literally. Um, And the Roman apologists object. They say, look, when Jesus tells the crowd that they have to eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, they reply, 60, "Eh, that's a hard saying. And the end result, verse 66, many of the disciples go back and walk with him no more. Well, say the Roman apologists, if this is all just a misunderstanding, if it shouldn't be interpreted in a physical way, but in a spiritual way, not in earthly terms, but in heavenly terms, why wouldn't Jesus just run after them and correct them and say, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not really the flesh that gives life. But of course, that is exactly what Jesus does in verse 63. As Jesus tells them, it is the spirit who gives life and the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Jesus does explain the meaning of the words here. And finally, let me point out to you that it's not even clear that this passage has any bearing um, on the Lord's Supper. As we're in a section that uh, has various feasts, and we're being taught through them how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things, Uh, This one in particular, this set in the time of Passover, the Passover of the Jews is at hand, and quite a lot of references to the Passover are all throughout this chapter. Uh, There is no Lord's Supper yet. Neither Christ's disciples nor the people would have understood anything about a meal that he was yet to institute. Uh, Jesus speaks about eating his flesh and his drinking his blood. The flesh of course, being the very word stressed in Exodus about the Passover lamb, where they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire. Yeah, this is a direct reference to the Passover, um, not, a refer- not, a du- not a direct reference to a meal that the Lord would eventually institute. Uh, if it was speaking about the Lord's Supper, you might expect him to say body and blood, Here, using the language throughout the passage of Passover, he uses flesh and blood. Well, more than I could say about a literal or earthly reading of the passage, you can go verse by verse and ask yourself at every verse, 
does this literally work out? And you'll see that uh, this is not the way that we are to be taking these passages. I don't think I have to sell that to you, but I do want to point out that just on the face of it, many, many verses do not work out that way. But I would like, however, to show you on the basis of John's teaching throughout the gospel how we should interpret this passage. Our second point, the gospel of John. Spiritual things are described in earthly terms. We'll go with the Gospel of John. Spiritual things are described in earthly terms. Every Gospel writer has his own way of teaching. Everyone has to be very selective in choosing certain things about what they're going to tell us about Jesus. And they each teach us his own, each one teaches us his own way. In this Gospel, John collects for us, chapter after chapter, several occasions as Jesus explains spiritual things in earthly terms. And I'll show you this pattern time and again. Jesus teaches something about his life and work in earthly terms, and the people misunderstand him. And often he gives the right explanation but we should not be making their mistake. So I'd like to, like to show you from the Gospel of John how we should interpret all these passages. So Jesus' public ministry begins back in chapter 2, in verse 19, if you'd like to take a look here. Uh, chapter 2, verse 19, where uh, Jesus is at the temple, and he cleanses the temple, and the leaders are outraged, and they say, what sign will you show us that you have authority to do this thing? And Jesus answers them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Still not done. And will you raise it up in three days? Jesus doesn't explain, but John gives us the note, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. They misunderstand him to be speaking in a literal way. Does Jesus run after them to correct their misunderstanding? No, he does not. Uh, John gives us the clue, but he lets it go. Let's go to the next chapter, chapter 3, where we find the same pattern. Nick at night. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and Jesus says to him in verse 3, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again... He can't see the kingdom of God. You know what's going to happen? Same thing. Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus actually goes on to explain using a few other earthly analogies, but then asks Nicodemus this important question. Okay, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? See the pattern. We look at chapter 4. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well and asks her for a drink. She's shocked that he would dare even to ask. Uh, Jesus uh, says to her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God, and he who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water little pun, running water, living water. How does she reply? You know what's going to happen. Same thing. 
She misunderstands. She takes his words at the literal level. Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from himself and his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst. Exactly the same words, by the way, as in chapter 6 that we read. The, the, whoever drinks this water that I'll give will never thirst. But the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into eternal life. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may not have to thirst and come here and draw. Still misunderstanding. Taking things to the literal level. Does Jesus explain? No. He actually turns the direction of the conversation and uh, makes his purpose plain, but uh, doesn't interpret this figure of speech. Down to verse 31 of chapter 4. In the meantime, the disciples urge him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus says to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. You know how this is going to go? What are they going to interpret? They're going to take it at the physical, literal level, right? The disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus does explain here, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. See the pattern. You see how we are to interpret Jesus in these passages time and time again as he teaches spiritual truths in earthly terms. And the people misunderstand. Sometimes he corrects them. Sometimes he doesn't correct them. Uh, We, the reader, are to get it. Well, let's go after that passage that we read earlier. Let's go to John. Let's just skip ahead to John 7 to the Feast of Tabernacles, breaking in at verse 34 of chapter 7. Jesus says to the crowd, You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. You know what's going to happen. Verse 35. The Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we should not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You'll seek me and and not find me and where I go, you cannot come. Jesus doesn't explain. He doesn't go run after them and say, hey, guys. He just leaves it. Down to verse 37, same chapter. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Doesn't explain, but John gives us the explanation. This he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. Uh, earth, uh, spiritual things in earthly terms. You, the reader, are supposed to get it. Let's, go to, let's just do one more chapter over to chapter 8, John 8. Now the festival of dedication, or Hanukkah, is at hand. Breaking in at verse 21, Jesus says, I'm going away, and you'll seek me, and you'll die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. The Jews say, will he kill himself? <laughs> because he says, where, you, where I go, you cannot come. Down to verse 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, what do they think? Same pattern. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say we shall be made free? Jesus does explain here. Verse 34, he answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Spiritual things in earthly terms. 
chapter after chapter, example after example. We shouldn't go and pick out one of these narratives and say, well, this we must understand literally, the rest of them we must understand spiritually. That's exactly the same mistake as the Jews make in every chapter in the book of John. Go throughout the Gospel of John and you will find the same pattern of spiritual things described in earthly terms. Many misunderstand Jesus, but you, the reader, are given enough hints that you should not be making that mistake. And uh, one more point about this. Some have wondered, I mean, was the whole thing with eating the flesh and blood, is that even talking about the Lord's Supper? I mean, it's, it might sound like it, right? Or being born of water and spirit, as Jesus explains in chapter 3, is that baptism? Does that have anything to do with baptism? Well, it's, you say, well, it, you know, it, it's pretty similar. But if that's so, what about all these other conversations? What sacraments would they apply to when Jesus speaks, for instance, about drinking living water and having eternal life? What sacrament is that teaching us about? You see, um, that, doesn't, that doesn't have any parallel at all. No, it's because it's talking about the festival, the Jewish festival that Jesus fulfills. We're, we're to read back, not to read forward. These festivals are all named, and in each one the element is given in order that we might be able to look back and interpret, not try to force it into our New Testament sacramental terms. Or having the water, the living water, flow out of him. What does that refer What, what, what sacrament is that? Baptism, Lord's Supper? No. Um, so uh, we don't have a sacrament of water drinking, And it's more likely that in all of these passages, Jesus is showing himself to be the fulfillment of all these different festivals and Sabbaths of Israel. And so Jesus is choosing these earthly illustrations from the feasts, the feasts which do speak about him, to show the spiritual nature of the uh, ministry of Christ in these physical or literal terms. The feasts themselves are given for this very purpose to teach the people of the Messiah to come. And Jesus is using their elements to explain and reveal himself. In any case, we need to read the Gospel of John according to how the author is is presenting things, not trying to dig through here and there for verses that would help us impose our theology upon it. For example, if you're reading the book of Proverbs, and you read in Proverbs, a man has joy... By the answer of his mouth. Proverbs 15, 23. A man has joy by the answer of his mouth. You know you're not supposed to ask, which man is that? What man? Um, that's, that, that, no, it's, it's a proverb. You, you know how the book of Proverbs teaches things again and again and again. We're in a whole string of Proverbs. You can't select one in the middle and ask what man in particular this is referring to. You need to take it in the way it's written. When we're reading through Matthew 13, a whole chapter of Jesus' parables, one stacked upon the other, and we read, Behold, a sower went out to sow. We we shouldn't say, what, was somebody planting crops here? Or was somebody planting crops then? No, no, no. It's in a whole string of parables. We need to interpret it as part of a parable. And likewise in the Gospel of John, when chapter after chapter... Jesus explains spiritual truths in earthly terms and people are misunderstanding and either Jesus is explaining or John is giving us the side explanation. We are to not stop in the middle 
and say, well, here we should interpret flesh and blood literally. I should also note that this chapter that we read, chapter 6, contains one of the I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Um, These things tie together all these other chapters and how they teach things. We must understand them all in context of each other. And just finally, from a theological perspective, by the way, um, forgetting all this for a second here, you know, at the Council of Chalcedon, the whole church got together and agreed that uh, Jesus had a true divine nature and a true human nature in one Christ, one in the same Latin word, person. Um, Yeah, that true human body is not a... uh, miracle body that can uh, be everywhere on every community table around the world at once. The Chalcedonian definition reminds us that Jesus has a true, uh, that is to say, an ordinary human body, true body, reasonable soul. The Lord's body is in heaven. It will descend in due time. um, And we shouldn't try to be making theology that contradicts the more fundamental theology of the church like divine and human natures. Okay, So if you understand that, fine, I'm moving along. Just to say, we considered the passage and why we cannot take these verses literally. There are far too many verses that just fail at the literal level. We then surveyed the Gospel of John briefly to see where time and again spiritual things are described in earthly terms in order that we might know how rightly we should interpret this passage. As Jesus time and again says, uh, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Now, you say that's perhaps helpful, but I still have some questions. Again, uh, save this difficulty till the end here. Does this meal then do anything for us? Do we not somehow commune with the body and blood of Jesus, as our earlier 1 Corinthians passage says? Uh, Even if John 6 may or may not even have anything to do with communion, what is our relationship to the body and blood of Jesus, and what does this do for it? Well, that's a very good question. And if you not here, weren't here last week, this might sound confusing or it might sound alarming. But I went to many passages to try to show you the basics, and I'm quoted extensively from our own church's catechism to show you I'm not a heretic. Okay, when we believe, when we believe, we are united to Jesus— Union with Christ, very, very important concept in the Bible. And remember what we learned last week about the means of grace, that through God's appointed means, this union is both effected and strengthened. What are those means of grace? Primarily, word, prayer, and theological word, sacraments, the for us, the Lord's Supper and Baptism. And we saw how often, how very often, the Bible uses sacramental language with means of grace, which opens them up to a misunderstanding. I agree. So, to speak more properly, uh, let me just do a a brief review with, I'm sorry, no scripture references, of which there are many. You might think, reading many passages, the Word saves us. Well, it says the Word saves us, right? Uh, But you know, it's not the Word that saves you. You know how it works. That Word 
communicates something to us. It is a means by which we come to believe in Jesus. We receive the Word and what it means by faith, and the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ and builds us up in Him by that same Word. That that union and communion is effected by means of a word that's communicated to you. The word isn't magic. I can't just speak the words and save you. Uh, when it says the, the word saves you, uh, receive with meekness the, uh, the, word, uh, implant, the implanted word that can save you. All, all these references, I can't go through it all again here, but you realize that's a shortcut It's a sacramental way of speaking that's very common in the Bible from the very beginning when Abraham was given circumcision and the same language is used, right? That we need to understand the word doesn't save us, but when we receive that word by faith, the Holy Spirit uniting us with Christ will uh, affect that union and communion, building us up in him. Prayer, likewise, does not save us. I know it says, whoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved, and so forth. However, we know that this is a sacramental shortcut, a way to say that we are saved through Christ's merits and the Spirit's regenerating power when, by faith, we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, who saves us. Okay? Prayer is not magic words. You can say the prayer with all the feeling you can have. It doesn't automatically do anything. It is, however, a means by which salvation comes to you and is increased in you and strengthened. And how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So don't think that prayer is no good. Don't think that it's magic words. Okay? Those are both errors. Well, we're using it as means of grace. Okay? And in the same way, baptism and the Lord's Supper, not nothing, not magical, but a means by which we are also uh, in union and communion with Jesus. These sacraments, uh, using again the theological word, sometimes called the word made visible, just as words say something, communicate something about the gospel of Jesus, which we receive with faith. And as we receive those words and are united to Christ, we are also built up in him. So baptism and the Lord's Supper mean something, which, again, we receive by faith, which, by the power of the Holy Spirit, build us up. That word and sacrament do things the same way. Not that they do things magically on their own. Not that they are worthless. But communicating to us those truths which we receive In faith, the Holy Spirit, uh, joining us to Jesus, builds us up in Him. That's a very brief recap of last week's sermon. If I left you more confused, maybe you can read it online. What kind of union, though, do we have is my question. All right, well, if all that's true, um, what kind of union do we have? Uh, Again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get things that all Christians can agree on. We are united to Jesus, body and soul. We have a union with Jesus in body and soul. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Um, 
warning them about warning them about what they do with their bodies like in terms of immorality don't you know that your bodies are members of christ and two verses later and he who is joined to the lord is one in spirit with him body and soul body and spirit we we are united to jesus uh can't tell you much more about the nature of that union but it is a true union and Ephesians 5 puts it this way, the two shall become one flesh, a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We have a true union with Jesus Christ in the whole of our humanity, body and soul. The earthly body of Jesus is in heaven, our body is on earth, and yet the Holy Spirit effects a unity that is real and lasts forever. That real union and communion with Jesus, body and soul, is made not in a magical way, but uh, nourished, uh, both made and nourished by the Holy Spirit through those ordinary means of grace, word, prayer, and sacrament. And therefore, what am I getting around to say? Uh, I'm saying that uh, just as the word that we believe by the Spirit unites us body and soul to Christ, so the Word, made visible, uh, does the same in order to strengthen our communion with Him in whom we are in union. Just as the Word does it, so that Word, made uh, invisible signs, does it in exactly the same way. And so that even Calvin, by the way, is willing to say, quote, according to the Lord's command, we are truly made partakers of the real substance of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. You say, how is that different from transubstantiation? Because Jesus' body is in heaven and we are on earth. The meal is uh, doing nothing other than what the word is also doing for you, uniting together body and soul, us with our Lord, and strengthening or nourishing that communion in the spirit. It is by faith it is spiritual, it is also real in the words, the categories that Calvin's using here. So just as we are nourished in Christ by the Word, so it is the Word made, so we are with the Word made visible. All right, so I said all, all Christians should agree uh, to this point, what I've said. I will, I will, of course, point out Lutherans and Roman Catholics, they have a whole other explanation about what's going on here on top of this that I'm going to reject is contrary to Chalcedonian Christianity. Uh, the Orthodox is right in line, the Orthodox Church is right in line with us, believing that we do truly feed on Christ, but in a mystical or mysterious and not in a literal way. And uh, the Protestants and the Orthodox uh, are much more cautious about our language as a result. Roman Catholics accuse Protestants in particular of having an empty right, that this is empty and reduced to nothing that matters very much. I hope that now, from what I've said, you see that's not the case. Is the word an empty word? Does the word accomplish nothing? Does the word not matter? This meal signifies and seals that same word of the gospel. And while I'm at it, the Church of Rome has no conception of what she has lost in giving up the infinite value of the once-for-all virtue of the sacrifice of Christ 
and putting in its place this idea of you having to represent Christ's sacrifice day after day to take away the sins of the living and those suffering in the torments of purgatory. There's a whole layer that Rome puts on top that obscures what I've been saying. But we believe, as Hebrews says, by one offering, Christ has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. That when we come to this table, we do have, as we do with the Word, our, our, our communion with Christ strengthened, and we are built up in Him by the Holy Spirit through faith. But we are not to think that these things are taking away our sins. Our sins have been taken away in Jesus, in whom we are already in communion. He has died for our sins. He has been raised to life for our justification, and we in him are able to come to this table and rejoice. Well, I hope I've answered some difficult questions. You saw why I saved this for last. Um, in conclusion, I'll say a brief survey of the top 50 best-selling Christian books reveals the subjects that are of greatest interest to Christians today. Books on purpose, finances, personality types, self-esteem, love languages, and relational boundaries dominate the top of the list. Books on God, Christ, sin, scripture, preaching, prayer, and sacraments. Those things that Christ himself appointed to communicate the surety of his promises to you are noticeably absent. I realize these things are a little hard to keep focused on, and the questions are rather arcane. Life and death do not depend upon your answers to the three questions about this meal. But brothers and sisters, our growth of grace in Christ is going to be commensurate with the use of the appointed means that Christ himself has given, chiefly the word and prayer and this supper and your baptism, which you are called to improve, that don't you know you've been baptized into his death and live evermore in Jesus? Well, theologians refer to these things as means of grace for good reason. They are the things which, even if they don't make the top 25, are the most significant for your life and future. Well, next week I'm going to be preaching on finances, personality, self-esteem, love languages, and relational boundaries. And I'm, I'm sure that I'll uh, gather back all those who have dropped off from this series. Uh, uh, well, uh, so thank you, brothers and sisters, for your, uh, for your focus on these things. Able to come to this meal, not in a uh, mysterious or magical way, uh, not, not merely trying to remember things and feed on our own faith, but uh, remembering that Christ is in heaven, we are on earth, and yet by the power and the blessing of the Holy Spirit, we have been united to him and coming with faith and receiving this bread and this wine as his body and his blood for you, that you would be strengthened and nourished in him week after week. That is my desire. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless these means of grace. The word that we've already read and preached, the prayers that we now make, the meal that we now enjoy, that we should be a people growing and strengthened in our Lord Jesus, and that our hope should be fully in him. 
We pray that if there's uh, still mysteries and clouds, as so many things are not explained, that uh, resting in Christ, that uh, this would be sufficient for the day. We pray that uh, even the youngest among us who comes to this table would be given grace to see the glories and the beauties of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Receiving such a word by faith, may the whole...